With the COVID-19 pandemic spreading across South Asia, India has not been hit as hard as anticipated, at least not in official statistics. While undercounting might be due to lack of available testing, the steps the Indian government took, including a 21-day lockdown, may have proven effective in staving off worst-case scenarios. However, that does not mean the government's response has been positive and welcomed across the country. The lockdown has exerted a devastating toll on those living in poverty, especially migrant workers. Minorities have once again been targeted as part or consequence of the COVID response. The measures the Modi government has taken have been widely seen as fitting into a larger trend characteristic of its Hindu nationalist policies. From the earliest days of the crisis, the Muslim minority has been blamed for the spread of the virus. While the blaming of minorities or marginalized groups is not unique to India, the fact that this comes so soon after the passage of the Citizenship Amendment Act in December, which sparked widespread protests and attacks targeting the Muslim community, has left many suspicious of any measures the government takes in addressing the health crisis. Other minority groups have also faced rumors of blame for the spread of the virus, including the LGBT community, especially transgendered persons. And some of the provisions of assistance for citizens announced by the government notably exclude the Muslim and the trans communities due to structural discrimination, specifically some of the formalities and paperwork required to receive such help. In Kashmir, a lockdown was already in place when the virus affected India, with internet and mobile communications largely cut off since Delhi announced in August 2019 that it would revoke Article 370, which had granted Jammu and Kashmir special status or limited autonomy since 1947. Numerous political figures and human rights defenders were detained, and after protests erupted, widespread arrests followed. Just as some restrictions were starting to be lifted, the COVID-19 crisis hit, and many in the territory feared the public health crisis would be devastating in a place cut off from access to the outside world and information. And rights group feared that more civil liberties would be curtailed under cover of the health crisis, something that seems to be happening with the recent arrest of three Kashmiri journalists, Masrud Dara, Hirasada Ashik, and Gohar Jilani, who have been arrested and charged, seemingly in order to quash dissent. The northeastern state of Manipur which has effectively been ruled by martial law since the Armed Forces Special Powers Act was introduced in 1958, is not as isolated as Kashmir, but has been kept on the margins of national development. The state has a large presence of army and security personnel, and civil society is under constant monitoring. With the first case of COVID-19 identified at the end of March, the state government put Manipur under lockdown. In addition to concerns over civil liberties, more vulnerable and marginalized groups in the state are at greater risk of devastating health and economic consequences. Over the past month, Frontline Defenders has documented and issued appeals on several cases of human rights defenders who have been arrested, detained or threatened due to their questioning of COVID response or in cases linked to COVID-19. Frontline Defenders talks with four human rights defenders to get a picture of their work and the risks they face and the context into which the COVID-19 pandemic and the government response occurs. The last few years in India has seen an increase of attacks against human rights defenders and deterioration of space for civil society. Now faced with a potentially devastating health crisis, how can human rights defenders mobilize in this era? Joining us in this episode are Gayatri Khandathai, Asia Policy Regional Coordinator at the Association for Progressive Communications, Anindya Hajra from the Patre Gender Trust based in Kolkata, Sadam Hanjapan from Yaoi, the first LGBT organization in Manipur, and a human rights defender from Kashmir who will remain anonymous out of security concerns. Special thanks to The Caravan, a leading independent magazine in India, for sharing this episode and helping bring it to a wider audience in India. With India under lockdown to confront the COVID-19 pandemic, we talk with human rights defender and lawyer Gayatri Khandala about the overall context in which this health emergency has occurred, the steps the government has taken, and how this is not just a health issue, but a political matter that leaves many exposed and vulnerable. Gayatri is the Asia Policy Regional Coordinator at the Association for Progressive Communications, who works on digital rights and freedom of expression. In the months before the COVID-19 crisis, India was witnessing widespread protests against the CAA introduced by the government. 
obviously those protests are not possible now but how are people pushing back against the caa the the caa uh, is not sort of a singular agenda uh, issue anymore right um it was a historic moment and it continues to be a historic movement it it, it witnessed the coming together of activists of students of affected communities in a way that's never happened before and even um until the very last moment uh, before the lockdown um people were holding uh, the ground there were different gatherings that held on uh, with five people with symbolic protests and until the very last moment where they had absolutely no other way they they, they did hold the ground and there are they are still waiting to get back to the streets to reclaim our space and to hold the state accountable what is really good about uh, or what rather it's fantastic what's really fantastic about this coming together is that these different groups still continue to coordinate through online mediums uh, through different groups we, we we continue having calls over uh, um, video conferencing platforms uh, to talk about the issues, to talk about how the state is still uh, making different arrangements uh, and getting uh, prepared for what's uh, going to happen after the lockdown. Um, of course, it's 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 a it's a welcome move that. Um, none of the groups that were protesting are continuing to protest now because there's there's a serious uh, public health emergency uh, situation right now but what is really interesting to note is that the pushback that you currently see against hate speech racism um against attacks on minorities all of this um uh, minorities as well as migrant workers is a result of those who are continuing to coordinate in these different groups the significant pushback that we are seeing um against this kind of speech and action is coming from those th- that had been coordinating but has also managed to cross pollinate uh, movements that i think that was actually a really good outcome of the uh, of the um, anti caa protests already that people who were working exclusively on certain issues um ended up uh communicating with and now coordinating with those working on other issues so the community has really grown in in that sense um there's another really interesting aspect to or what we're doing right because one uh, it was not just against uh, caa our protest was also against nrc and the census being conducted uh, 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 along with the national register uh, of of citizenship um both the nrc and the census have been put on hold uh, in the backdrop of, of covid but what's really uh, important is that even if um, the local communities are getting a, 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 a you know a vague sense that perhaps a census or an nrc um, exercise is being uh, undertaken they're refusing to share data and in fact they they're pushing the uh, uh, the enumerators out of the area if they get the sense that maybe this is this could be an nrc exercise so that shows that the communities on ground are, are still very active and are not willing to participate uh, in a discriminatory exercise like nrc or caa i'm glad you mentioned the nrc as well in that i've heard from others for instance who are working with the trans community in india is that one of the concerns for them for instance is that some of the measures that the government is proposing to take in the current health crisis to provide financial support to individuals would require depositing money in their bank account that would involve sharing your information with the government bank details etc now there are a number of people who don't trans persons who don't have accounts and either could be marginalized by this kind of support measure or be forced into giving forward information about themselves that may be used to exclude them in a registration later on and i understand that this could affect other communities not just the trans community are you concerned about some of the measures the government may be taking to address the health crisis including some of the economic effects either measures to try to help supposedly or steps that they're trying to take that could advance their agenda under the cover of the health crisis yes this is precisely the problem right now now the issue you mentioned about the trans community is is the issue that we've had with the aadhar uh, project for instance because our data is being collected but we have very little uh, sense of how it is going to be stored how it is going to be accessed what are the safeguards around it now this is exactly what is happening with the current uh, spree of asking for bank data uh, and other information 
Now, another what's what's really problematic with this is that um, there's also um, surveillance happening and there's also checking happening, door-to-door uh, -door campaigns happening where the corporation and, and state officials who've been appointed uh, come around and take our detail, take our uh, health status, right? Now, there's, there's no real uh, sense of how this data is going to be secured. This is particularly problematic because of the stigma that's surrounding COVID. Um, now, I'll give you an example of an app that the state has set up. No? It's the Arogesetu, which has been downloaded more than 10 million times already, uh, which is being vigorously and uh, promoted by uh, uh, none less than the Prime Minister. Now, this app brings about really serious questions of surveillance and privacy. Because the user agreement does say that uh, the information that they ask for is age, sex, whether you're a smoker, where your location is, and uh, gender, a, a whole lot of things, right? Um, what it in effect does is uh, it tracks you. From the minute you log into the app, it tracks you in real time, and it allows others to also get a sense of who, uh, how close they are to an infected person. Uh, the app also does a mapping to see how much of a population is around the infected person. So anyone who signs on sort of becomes a red dot or a, or a blue dot on the app, I suppose. Now, the user agreement says that this will the data collected here would not be sold to third parties, but it also makes it quite clear that the data collected is going to be shared with state, age, state and other agencies. Now, this, this really um, raises serious uh, questions because... Uh, we don't know the extent to which this data is going to be used, where the server is going to be, who is going to have access to this data, to this data, especially given that India doesn't have a data protection regime. So that's so technologically there are many questions, and then there are multiple efforts being made to geo uh, fence people. There's also other forms of surveillance the state is engaging in. Uh, they've collected many of our phone numbers, especially those who have travelled. Uh, from abroad. So we don't really have a sense of how we are being tracked. Um, what is the technology they're deploying? There's, there's, it's completely opaque. And it's not really um, something that's a, a top priority for the state to address. So that those are some of the ways. The other ways in which uh, the state is also functioning is by creating hotspots. Many of the hotspots um, are also minority areas. The many of the hotspots are also areas where there were slums, economically weaker sections have been residing in, uh, caste-based, uh, uh, you know, oppressed communities have been staying in. So we don't know what's going to happen with these so-called hotspots that the states has uh, have designated. So these are serious uh, problems about how the state uh, um, uh, measures could be uh, problematic in the long run. Stepping back, a second to the bigger picture, human rights defenders in India and the human rights situation in general have been under sustained pressure, attack and harassment since Modi came to power and yet has not received anywhere near the international attention as other countries, such as the Philippines, for instance. From your perspective as a human rights defender and someone who has experienced this kind of harassment and efforts to undermine your work over the years, how have you experienced the last few years and why do you think the government has been able to push in this direction and get away without scrutiny that other countries have? I, mean, I think it's an extremely um, important and interesting question. And uh, I would, I, I mean, the simple answer to all of that is that um, in the international arena, India is a bully. Yeah, politically, it's a bully uh, um, when it comes to uh, engaging with other states. So we seem to be under the impression that um, being a part of different international um, uh, organizations and coalitions uh, does not come with responsibilities. Now, one simple example would be the UN Human Rights Council. As a member of the UN Human Rights Council, where we've taken voluntary pledges, uh, we have the obligation to ensure that we are upholding human rights domestically and to be answerable for it internationally. But the uh, machismo and the bravado with which the Indian state functions not only domestically, but also internationally, makes uh, the political cost of questioning countries like India and China too much. It's, it, it becomes too much of a hassle for other states to, to question um, 
India and China. That's one reason. The second reason is that India is seen as a supposed democracy. Um, it's true that we are a democracy, but I think we must uh, remember that uh, an electoral democracy is different from a functioning democracy. Um, so I think that uh, that that distinction is it, the nuance of that distinction is still a bit lost. The other reason is that there is a significant price that comes along with calling out or making public the the situation of human rights in India internationally for the domestic um, human rights defenders. Um, some of us are still able to do it because we have significant protection uh, networks. So in my case, for instance, uh, when I raised uh, the issue about, um, um, you know, the CAA being uh, repressive and uh, against the constitution, the easiest thing the state could do was to call me an anti-national and, and a Pakistani agent. And that that basically was uh, is like a dog whistle. No, they threw me to the wolves and there was a lot of trolling and my security got compromised. But because I worked with human rights defenders in vulnerable situations for a while, I knew how to protect myself. Now, that's not really uh, um, something that all human rights defenders are able to, right? That that kind of network is not available to them. The kind of resources that uh, otherwise is available to some human rights defenders is not available to others. So it also becomes very difficult for local groups to coordinate and be visible in international um, arenas. But one thing is certain, the space available for holding the Indian state accountable uh, nationally is, is significantly reducing. So we have no choice but to rely on international mechanisms. We have no choice but to rely on uh, international actors as well to support our call for uh, ensuring that we remain a democracy and that our, our rights are not further diluted. And I could give you one example, right? In the last few days, India holds the esteemed position of being the only state that turned this entire COVID situation into a religious issue. The kind of Islamophobia that we've seen in the in the last months already with uh, CAA, but also especially in the last few days, is unprecedented, and and that's really uh, something that uh, that we are not able to resolve only nationally because the Indian state is also exporting its uh, its its racism and casteism at an international level. But I think the time has come uh, for the international community to to sort of. Um, realize that they, they do have, have a responsibility towards uh, ensuring that human rights of all people, including Indians, are protected. They do need to step up and ask the tough questions of the Indian state. Thinking of the post-COVID world in India, what do you fear some of the measures that the government has been taking now or some of the things that they're failing to do that may have long-term impacts for Indians and for the human rights situation? So I'd like to build on what I said about Islamophobia, right? So when you're talking about the Indian state it's um, and, and the measures that's being taken by the Indian state, it's no, no longer just uh, the state in, in the traditional sense that we've understood it. It's not, not just the elected government. It's not just the officials. There are a lot of forces that work in cohesion uh, that ensure that the state is able to exercise a certain level of... Um, of control and uh, and power over us. And this includes the, the private sector, uh, social media platforms, and it includes media, it includes uh, certain sections of civil society, um, the religious figures, it, it includes a whole range of actors, right? And it's, it's what and how um, it is that they are functioning together, that's really the uh, the alarming part of it. So one of the one of the recent uh, incidents about uh, the coordinated campaigns on uh, Corona Jihad, um, Muslim means um, uh, violence. It's it's it, you know Muslim means disease. Uh, Madrasa hotspots. These are uh, coordinated campaigns that the state has. Uh, of course, this is the the Indian government has put out an advisory saying do not um, make this into a religious issue. Uh, while formally they've been giving out these sort of advisories the uh, i'll give you an example of uh, of the health secretary mr agarwal 
making it clear that uh, in India, the number of cases um, of coronavirus would have been uh, half of what it was had it not been uh, 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 for a Muslim gathering that happened uh, with, a, with a group of infected persons that resulted in the infection uh, spreading, supposedly. And this, this was said during a WHO meeting. Uh, now, thankfully, the WHO uh, responded, uh, making it clear that uh, ev everyone is a victim here and, and, and coronavirus doesn't know uh, religion. But so you see the dichotomy between the formal position the state is taking, but how they continue to spread um, uh, subtly and, and quite obviously uh, hate speech and uh, division between commun communities. And the communal messaging continues. So I think, uh, and also uh, the way in which the prime minister has been uh, trying to bring about solidarity between uh, among citizens also does have religious undertones, whether it is asking us to come out on the balconies and light lamps during a particular time or bang the plates. All of these do have religious undertones or the religious undertones to this is found by uh, the other sections that I mentioned. Now, what's really problematic is that the, the media... Uh, social media is also working in cahoots with the government in in not on the one hand um violently promoting this kind of hate and the state's uh, measures of uh, clamping down on uh, freedoms and on the other hand failing to address, uh, in, especially in the case of social media, failing to address hate speech, failing to address violent messaging. So there is the, there is uh, uh, the functioning of these three together. And then you see an increasing um, influence of, of religious figures and the formalization and legitimization of religion uh, in political spaces by the state. So then what happens is that these religious figures start finding uh, divine uh, angles to 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 what uh, the state is trying to do um so, for instance, anyone who was questioning the lockdown, uh, there were very few people who disagreed with the lockdown uh, but what was certainly a, a point of concern is is the unpreparedness around and around the lockdown that has ultimately resulted in people um, being rendered homeless, being rendered uh, hung hungry, uh, being rendered unprotected because all of their data, where they are, all uh, the entire security system has been collapsed. Right, uh, and what happens is these these um, the media, the religious bodies, uh, social media finds uh, immediate justifications for what's happening. Uh, and really comes down violently on people who question. Uh, questioning the state, asking questions of the state, uh, it has been turned into an anti-national and uh, an immoral exercise, so to say. And you will see human rights defenders being warned, uh, journalists like Rana Ayub being warned very publicly uh, about serious consequences for asking questions. Now, this trend is is being further cemented during the, the, the current pandemic. Um, and similarly, uh, the the mass movement, the exodus of, of migrant workers throws open questions of uh, the uh, security for their future. I think the economic uh, future of all countries looks, uh, you know, quite uh, bleak. But what it means for certain sections of societies, especially uh, religiously marginalized groups, caste-based marginalized groups, economically weaker sections, is still something that uh, we haven't quite figured out. And all of these has big questions for um, economic, cultural, and social rights um, of individuals beyond civil and political rights. Is there anything else you would like to add? One of the big questions that we still have is, uh, is reliability on these figures because we our testing numbers are still so low. Uh, especially testing uh, is really um, biased, uh, especially the fact that the testing has been targeted towards certain communities, you know, uh, towards uh, caste-based uh, oppressed communities, towards religious minorities. So we don't actually know the real figures of, uh, of who are the asymptomatic individuals who might be carrying COVID. Uh, but also another very, um, uh, you know, alarming um, issue with, uh, with how the state has dealt with COVID is, is the dilution of the federal uh, system. Um, uh, while we have a different federal system from the U.S., we still have uh, the provinces still maintain quite a bit of power. Um, what has happened uh, at the backdrop of, of uh, COVID is that the state has started sort of uh, centralizing it, uh, power and how the uh, and uh, taking decisions on how the COVID situation is to be dealt with. 
whereas the states are the ones that are actually on the state governments are the ones that are actually on the ground um so i think the dilution of the federal system is also something that for indians it should be raising red flags In 2019, India passed a transgender law, which, despite its name, was roundly, roundly criticized by activists and rights groups for failing to provide certain rights-based provisions. The trans community in India remains largely marginalized and struggling economically. The COVID-19 crisis has hit the trans community hard, forcing them out of public life on which they almost entirely rely for survival. Anindya Hajra is a trans feminist, transgender rights and social justice activist, working with the Pratya Gender Trust, which focuses on issues surrounding systemic discrimination surrounding transgender persons, right to work, economic justice and inclusion. Given the current pandemic COVID-19 and the measures that have been taken in the country, how has your work changed or been impacted in supporting the transgender community? You see, transgender persons who are working class and those whose source of livelihood, uh, like the millions of day wage earners in India, uh, depends on being out there on the streets, whether at traffic signals or in the neighborhoods where uh, their basic traditional livelihood is sort of concerned. Um, they are one of the worst hits in the wake of the covid-19 related measures and the lockdown and the situation that has emerged the situation is already compounded um, given the lack of social and economic security uh, and also the fact that uh, recently in 2019 we had the parliament of india uh, enact the transgender persons act Uh, which is uh, an act which has been criticized uh, and a lot of trans activists have expressed their um, fears about not uh, being adequate or actually being quite discriminatory in nature uh, which offers practically no protection to trans persons on these fronts of offering social protection of offering reservations um and makes things really difficult and complex so what i'm basically trying to say is that we are in a really bad situation and covid-19 the response to covid-19 and the and and the emerging situation is really impacting the trans community um very very negatively the other day we were out distributing food grains and ration and we saw how trans persons are going without food without medicine um and there are a number of other issues which are compounding the situation for example trans persons who have been in family situations which have anyway been violent and have been negative and discriminatory are now faced with are now forced to sort of be locked up in domestic spaces open to chances and the potential of domestic violence and abuse uh, which includes uh, sexual assault uh, trans persons are also going without having any access to hormonal drugs because they are not considered as essential drugs so um this is triggering a lot of dysphoria a lot of uh, a lot of discomfort um we have received we have received news and information of how some trans persons have even attempted to take their lives um and also the access to ART uh, for trans persons who are positive HIV positive are also something that is being affected supply of drugs are being affected yeah so that's the situation we've heard similar kinds of accounts especially of trans people in other countries as well can you talk a bit about the well-being and the mental health and well-being you mentioned that some people have attempted to take their lives 
what kind of services are available in general for the trans community for their mental health and well-being and to what extent has this been impacted i mean obviously face to face therapy is not available at this time but what support is available right now there is some degree of support which uh, the ministry of social justice and empowerment has initiated uh, but that comes with a rider that comes with a rider that a lot of trans persons who would have to avail uh, you know some meager cash benefits that would come into their bank account would first need to a have a bank account in those names that they would they are giving out and would also need to submit uh, id documents now we know how complex that situation is because um, uh, trans persons often do not have bank accounts especially working class trans persons do not have a bank account in the in the in the in their preferred name and also the whole business of acquiring id documents um, that is also complicated because not many trans persons can uh, submit or you know uh, produce an id document in 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 their preferred names but this is also sort of uh, linked to a larger concern that the country had witnessed uh, a few weeks ago before the covid-19 um, scenario uh, emerged uh, and that is uh, that is the country wide protests uh, about the citizens amendment act an act which the government had sort of brought about which uh, tended uh, which uh, threatened uh, uh, as activists claimed the secular democratic fabric of this nation where uh, citizenship had to be proved and citizenship were, were, i mean certain sects and communities were barred mainly muslims uh, were barred from um, uh, sort of um, you know uh, taking citizenship uh, so so that was a closely guarded and deeply contested domain now prior to this process a national registry of citizens uh, was sort of um, uh, was being prepared uh, which was supposed to be rolled out from the 1st of april now that hasn't been rolled back actually um, it has only been put on hold now the concern that trans communities have expressed on the basis of this uh, uh, dole that is being uh, given out by the ministry of social justice um, um, in the covid-19 scenario is that how this data that is being now collected from trans persons whatever data that is being collected um, uh, before these uh, Uh, before this money is coming to the bank account or is somehow being distributed to the community how is this data going to be used in future and whether trans persons who are anyway in a precarious situation uh, given the complexity around uh, identity and proving one's identity with the whole issue of self identity being contested deeply even within the current act how that is going to get impacted in the process of the national uh, the nrc which is the national registry of citizenship and 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 this whole business of citizenship proving one's legitimacy as an indian citizen whether that is going to be compli- complicated that is even going to be get compounded is something that is uh, a, a growing fear a nagging fear that the trans communities have uh, expressed so that really sort of um, leaves us with zero options almost uh, in terms of accessing uh, social benefits in accessing food uh, you know distribution uh, in uh, distribution of food grains and ration um, in any case that uh, process is uh, complex because the the public distribution system uh, for uh, is inaccessible for trans persons um mostly uh, there are very few trans people who can um access them given the fact that it is sort of linked to ident id documents and and various stages of verification so what we are relying upon are community based efforts uh and efforts that are geared by by common people who we have appealed to who have been generous enough to uh, donate food grains and ration and this is a happening not just in calcutta in bengal but also in other parts where trans activists frontline trans activists on the ground are mobilizing uh, these efforts uh, for the communities uh, to access uh, what are essential medicines uh, food supplies um, you know um, hygiene products etc We've already seen in some countries that the LGBT community has been targeted at this time of pandemic with some extremists holding the community responsible for the pandemic as some form of uh, 
punishment from God. Um, I mean, has this been the case in India and have you or your colleagues faced risk? Yeah, I mean, uh, what what we have, we have uh, heard, come across narratives and reports of how trans persons have been, um, you know, I mean, there is a general uh, pathologization and uh, uh, criminalization of trans persons. You know, the general narrative supports that view um, in, in and also the narrative of contagion. In terms of uh, in terms of some uh, people who are sick and people who are disease carriers, etc. So, in the current scenario, this narrative tends to get uh, more far. I mean, far more emboldened. And we have uh, received uh, uh, reports where trans people have been actually. Uh, there have been, um, you know, thankfully the attack did not escalate, but there has been attack on trans persons in North Bengal, uh, for example, in a region where we work, uh, where, um, you know, when they had been out on uh, on the on the streets to actually get food grains, were sort of uh, chased and by local people, and they had to run to security in order to um, uh, save themselves from being lynched. You know, uh, that was one, that was the apprehension that they uh, expressed. So I mean, um, yeah. So uh, there there is uh, there is uh, some degree of threat as perceived by um, trans persons. Uh, primarily because uh, their roles are out in the public, you know, they they are they are they they're, they're out there in the public and they're dependent on uh, in the uh, on the availability of public spaces uh, for their livelihood. So yeah, this this is a complicated relationship that we have witnessed um, very very pertinently to the question that you asked. Thank you so much for sharing that information with us and with our listeners. If folks that are listening want to help and support your work and the trust, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So many people are actually uh, volunteering to uh, to come up with, say, their vehicles or their pickup trucks or food grains or medicines. It's not just it's just not um, a donation online, uh, but we are open to any sort of assistance that might be geared uh, for the trans community uh, here in Calcutta, Bengal, or in India. And we'd be very happy to uh, to answer any such questions. And we can we'll definitely share the link with you. Yes. Please do, and we will share the information on our social media and the podcast. When Saddam Hanjabam returned to his native Manipur a few years ago, he quickly established the state's first LGBT organization, aware that youth in the region were disconnected and facing health, psychosocial and identity crisis due to lack of support and community. Yaol, the organization he founded, is now in emergency support mode during the pandemic, distributing food, providing virtual counseling and arranging for HIV medications when supplies are diminishing. Can you give us a picture of the situation now in Manipur in terms of the COVID-19 crisis and any restrictions that have been put in place on the community? There is a huge uh, kind of anxiety and uncertainty and fear among people. So there have been certain directives given by the state and the central government to help the people to so that they could uh, get food and medicines and everything, all that people need on time. But... What has happened is like there's a huge gap that we didn't like the even the government didn't oversee it. Like there has been a many population from the uh, LGBTI community, from daily wage workers, laborers, construction workers, people living with disabilities, people living with HIV. All these people were not given that much time to kind of you not know, prepare even for their food or even for their medicines. So uh, we as a group of young people, what we are doing is we are crowdfunding um, uh, some, uh, what do you say, money from people and we are uh, buying uh, food materials for them. And till now we have distributed 300 food packages from our side and we are planning to do more because uh, there's a huge gap. 
uh, when the government does it, takes time. So we started individually as a, as a group of young people. And yeah, there has been kind of sorts of medicines. Like there were people who are living with HIV from the far off places, you know, because of the lockdown. It's totally locked down in Manipur now. Like there, there should not be no uh, grocery shop. There should not be no markets from yesterday itself for a week. So only medicals, only milk boot, and only uh, media, the hawkers are allowed to move outside. So yeah, everyone is at home and even people who are sick, only hospital is serving only emergency cases. So there's a huge issue with that, that other people who are falling sick, they are not able to attend hospitals. So it's kind of a mess, yeah. We've seen on social media, on Facebook, how you've posted about the food packages and other support you have been delivering to the transgender community also. Can you talk a bit about how the transgender community is affected, especially by a situation of lockdown, where they're confined to their homes, and how are they able to survive financially, economically? Mostly in Manipur, most of the younger transgender persons, um, mostly trans women, they, they earn their livelihood by running salons or beauty parlors, or like doing small businesses, which, which they open up a shop and earn their living out of it. So uh, unlike the uh, trans, trans women uh, people in other parts of India who are into begging or sex work, so the Manipur in Manipur, they do not do that. Like Manipur, transgender person in Manipur, they do not do that. Uh, so they mostly work in shops and in, in their own enterprises. So because of the lockdown from last weeks, no, it's been days. It's been more than 10 days. So all the shops are shut. And most of the transgender person, trans woman person, they, they are either, they are staying in the parlor itself because some of them, they, they have run out of from home because of violence or because the family doesn't accept it. So they have nowhere to go. They cannot go back to their home or some, some of them, they do not get the supplies properly for the food and ration and every, everything. And for, uh, from the government side, it has been said that there will be cash transfers to, to the account if uh, they provide all their details, like the Aadhaar card, which is an, the mandatory card in India, and other account details and everything. But what they have forgotten is not everyone has account. So they can, even if they are transferring money, those people who transgender person who do not have a bank account, they will not get any support. So this is where we are coming in, that there are so many people who do not have accounts, there are so many people who do not have access to all the, what do you say, uh, documents. So this this is a huge kind of no uh, barrier to even access the services which the government is giving, in, even in the crisis situation. So uh, that's why we are kind of no, uh, trying to at least bridge the gap where we could at least provide some basic food materials to, to support them. And yeah, and until now we have distributed 50 uh, food packages to uh, elder trans men and younger trans women. And we are looking forward that we will do more like in the coming days, yeah. Are you concerned for the LGBT community, especially for youth who are now under lockdown, are forced to spend more time in their home, who may maybe aren't out to their parents? Are you concerned about them and their physical safety? We have heard that in China, for instance, in lockdown, um, there were increased incidents of domestic violence against women. Uh, are you concerned about that phenomenon happening in Manipur? What is happening in the ground, like in, among the networks, is like even for queer person who are who are uh, who are HIV positive or who are into medicines, because they are not out to their family. And uh, kind of, no, they are not out of the family. They are not able to have it, have the medicine openly, or they are not able to access it from the hospitals because most of them are coming back home because of the lockdown. They used to stay in other cities and their linkages were different, not from where they used to collect uh, medicines. But when they came back home, because they have one thing, they are not open about their sexuality. Second thing, they are not, not open about their health condition or health status. They are kind of living in frustration. And there was a case in Manipur, which we recently dealt with, where a young queer person, uh, the kind of, the medicine got over. 
because of the lockdown. So they didn't know, they did not know from where to access medicine in Manipur. But again, they, are, they were staying with their family. So they felt kind of very uh, scared even to ask because, and they were not able to go out and check in the pharmacy or everywhere. They don't have a prescription and everything. And it's, it's a discreet case. So this kind of things is happening and they, they, had, they stopped taking medicine for a week. So ART medicine stopped taking for a week. It's like, you know, difficult. So somehow we had to manage it from other networks. We had to share medicine with some other people who are already taking it while we are trying to access their medicine from the hospital in Imphal. And these are cases coming from Imphal and outside Imphal. So people, we only have this context here, but for those people who do not have context, like who do not have support and who do not see there are support groups or there are people, I don't know what's, what might be happening to them. Yeah. What are your fears for the queer community in Manipur? What are your concerns if this continues for a longer period of time, as many expect it will? In Manipur, um, already there is a unique place in India in terms of the legal situation and the political status. On top of that, there is the marginalization of the queer community. What are your concerns moving forward? Mostly, uh, mostly the concern now recently is the about mental health of, of everyone, like for the queer people the most because uh, we have been staying at home all the time. And on above that, we have been uh, exposed to all this anxiety and uncertainty regarding the pandemic, you know? Uh, so it's like you are back to your home again, then those people who are out, they are fine. But for those people who are not out and very, very much discreet, they have to stay at home all the time. And it's more kind of pressurizing to their own mental health. You know, for for even for me, for example, even for me who's living with a kind of you no know, uh, mental health condition, we it's it's really difficult. It's really difficult means you use you we have to stay at home all the time, and you know it it, it gets very depressing. It gets very low, and people become suicidal most of the time. And we have been creating this network. We, we know, uh, in our helpline number, even there are calls that people are saying that, no, they have become very depressive. They have become very suicidal and they, they want to know kind of, it's, it, it's literally a bad scene. People are uh, reaching out to us and they want to talk because, you know, in family, they cannot talk. So now some people are coming out. Actually, some people are coming out now because uh, they are almost staying at home all the time and it's uh, the frustration is killing themselves. So they at least need some support and our helpline is helping with that. But yeah, that has been the main issue, the mental health. We are promoting three things. We are trying to reach out to people on three, three things. First is on the uh, running out of food materials and ration for uh, queer people and other marginalized population younger ones and elder ones equally and more mostly for the uh, transgender persons who have no support either from home or either from the government till now so we are we are crowdfunding for that so that we will supply more food material so that they don't end up being hungry and second part is about the mental health part we we are trying to we are trying to form a network of counselors mental health therapists who will provide support to them. So we have created a network uh, for a list of phone numbers that that any person can reach out and speak to us. But for that, you know, the, some are coming out voluntarily, but again, because uh, the anxiety and, and, and this situation is bad for everyone, that it's also affecting the counselors and the therapists itself. So we, 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 we want to have more, uh, what do you say, mental, mental health professionals, even if we have to engage doctors. When doctors, because I'm saying as the, um, what do you say, the hospitals are not allowing general and OPD sections where you can just do a general checkup or about your mental health or about your health as general, only emergency services are allowed. So until it's not emergency, you cannot access health now health services which is really difficult and somehow we if we get support from somewhere 
then we would like to connect to doctors for the community who are friendly and affirmative. And third part is about the access to medicine. You know, the medicines what we are doing for people living with HIV, queer people living with HIV, what we are doing, we are sharing medicines now. Like if somebody has a bottle which is not finished, we are sharing medicines. Like young people are coming out and like they are willing to share like for one week dose, two weeks dose. These things are, these things were not before the lockdown. And even after lockdown, after so many directives, this, this things doesn't hit people's mind. So we have to ask the government, but there is no kind of no space where we can put this forward. So we are trying our best at our own levels to access medicines. For example, the ART medicine. Thank you for the interview. Thank you for your time. And definitely stay safe there in Manipur. Kashmir is under COVID-19 lockdown, but that is merely an extension of the lockdown and closure of the region that has been in place since August 2019, and Article 370 was revoked. We speak with a human rights defender from the region. We have kept the identity of the human rights defender anonymous out of security concerns for their safety. Kashmir was effectively shut down months ago by the Indian government and access cut ahead of the COVID-19 pandemic. How did that situation impact the initial ability of Kashmiris to respond to the crisis? To begin with, we have been totally cut off from the rest of the world since the 5th of August last year. The people in Kashmir were not aware of the impact, the grimness as well as the intensity of the coronavirus crisis in the rest of the world. So they were technically not prepared for, for what was going to come to them in their place in Kashmir. Due to the internet blockade and other kinds of communication blockade, no one was aware of the impact of the crisis and the things that could have prevented it to enter into this domain. It was the winter season and that's the time when Kashmiris travel to places in India and, and outside to some other warm places. If the risks had been communicated earlier through the internet or some other media, maybe they would have minimized their travel. Because ultimately the source of the infection in Kashmir was traced to returning travellers and now the number of confirmed cases is growing exponentially day by day. And secondly, the entire administration was busy rushing into implementing decisions made by the central government following the abrogation of Article 370 wherein they were trying to strengthen the illegitimate occupation of India over Kashmir. So they also were not prepared for the coronavirus crisis. There were just a few golden hours in the beginning if preparations had been made in time, but these were lost. For example, in India, readiness was somewhere in the month of January. But in Kashmir, it was only after the first death that the administration woke up. But the people of Kashmir have been habituated to these kinds of crises, and technically every individual in Kashmir is a crisis manager. So they started innovating in terms of preparing hand sanitizers, in terms of preparing PPE or personal protective equip equipment for all people from frontline workers to the local roadside workers through whatever materials they had. So in the post-August 5th scenario, Kashmir was cut off from the rest of the world. We were not aware of the intensity and grimness of the problem. People in Kashmir thought it was happening in China or in some other parts of the world. It will never come to Kashmir. And two, because of the communications blockade, we were not aware that this thing is spreading through human contact. Three, nobody among us Kashmiris was aware, especially at the community level, that we have to prevent it through some measures. There were no efforts to spread awareness, which could have been done at an earlier stage. How has the Indian government treated Kashmir since it started measures to respond to the health emergency? Are Kashmiris due to receive the same government support as people in India? It's not about the immediate response. It's about the response that Kashmiris have been receiving from the Indian states since decades now. Everything in Kashmir is being seen through the prism of occupation. Every concern, be it education, be it environment, is being used, misused and abused by the state for fulfilling its occupational goals. The outcome is that at this time, the health sector in Kashmir is poorly equipped and totally depleted. According to one recent study, 
there is one ventilator for every 70,000 persons and there is one hospital bed for every 9,000 or so patients. So this gives us a reflection of how the government of India has been treating Kashmir in terms of the health sector, leaving aside other sectors. And this is before the current crisis period. And now the government is trying to jump into all kinds of initiatives, but without the infrastructure and manpower, it's going to be a disaster or it will just be an eyewash. For example, there have been cases where people have been put into quarantine for 14 days. When they showed no symptoms, they were sent home without any testing. After four days at home, having come into contact with many people, they turned out to be positive, which put the entire community at risk of infection. To give you some examples of the arrogance and attitude of the government of India, when a disaster like this happens in any country, it cannot be sorted out by the government on its own. It cannot be sorted out by any individual. You have to take all the people who are willing to support you on board. A few days ago, there was an organization that provided ventilators to the hospital, but they were returned only because of some bureaucratic disagreement. And then just day before yesterday, 5,000 test testing kits were being flown from Delhi to Kashmir, but they were diverted to Jammu region, which is a Hindu-dominated area, while Kashmir is a Muslim-majority area. After the intervention of the chief secretary, people say the test kits have been brought to Srinagar, but there is no confirmation as of now. At this point of time, Kashmir has not a single N95 mask available. There is acute shortage of simple surgical masks. There is acute shortage of PPE for the health workers, for the chemists, for the municipality workers, and for the police who are on the roadside. The major effort we are missing is on the preventive side. While the government every day is issuing orders that they're doing all these things, thing A, thing B, thing C, to ensure that the footfall is very minimum so that the spread of this pandemic can be prevented. But what happens on the ground is that when you don't provide the facilities for people to stay indoors, they are forced to come out of their homes to get their essential supplies, to get their medicines. So the government's claims are just a hoax. It's not willing to leverage the expertise or take the help of the volunteers, and it's making the community suffer for this. It's a war crime. There is a pandemic, but it's a blessing in disguise for the state. Because they love the land, but they don't want the people. If this kills people, their deaths can be blamed on the pandemic. But in covert shape, the government is controlling the resources, controlling the equipment, controlling the needs while creating hurdles for the people who are willing to deliver. There are a lot of local organizations that were willing to deliver on their own and solve the food crisis. But two districts have passed orders that all relief efforts have to be routed through the administration. Entering into that domain will consume a lot of time and effort for any organization to get its material approved and distributed. Many local organizations have already done the groundwork to identify and reach those families in genuine need of food kits, but getting bureaucratic approval is holding things up. Indian authorities have targeted human rights defenders for a long time in Kashmir, and particularly since revoking Article 370. How have you and your work been impacted? This kind of an approach has been used by the government of India for decades in Kashmir to target, to harass, to intimidate human rights defenders and Kashmiris at large. And now in the current dispensation, this process has started all across India. So over a period of time, the experiences to combat this are also being learned by the people. Nobody takes it as legal, but it's understood as revenge, as pressure tactics, so that the human rights defenders are stopped from bringing out the facts into the limelight. So obviously every human rights defender is mentally prepared to some extent for some type of reprisal from the state. During the current coronavirus crisis, anyone already working on conflict-related human rights is trying to provide humanitarian relief, especially to those facing a hunger crisis. The arrogance of the state is that, at this point in time when everyone is working together to combat the crisis, in Kashmir, the bureaucracy is so authoritarian that it is trying to impede genuine humanitarian work. It's trying to implicate human rights defenders in false cases. It's trying to fabricate cases against human rights defenders who are helping those worst affected by the lockdown. This is a really big challenge. The government, with its limited resources and competence, wants to control all relief efforts. The fear factor is always there. There is pressure on the families, there is harassment, they keep on following you, keep on calling you to the police station just for inquiries sake. It's not for inquiries, but they keep calling. Their mindset is that whatever the human rights defenders are doing is not good for them and must be stopped. 
even if preventing human rights and humanitarian work is a basic violation of international law. As a human rights defender, what are you most concerned about during this emergency, both in the short term and the longer term, based on the measures you are seeing the Indian government taking and the way Kashmir is being dealt with? In the first case, we have to understand that India is a third world country. It has limited resources. Then it's multi-religious, multilingual, and it has insurgencies in about one-third or one-fourth of its districts. Then the case of Kashmir is altogether different. There the Indian government tries to present it to the international community in a shape as if it is trying to do something good for Kashmir. But ultimately the truth is something altogether quite different. In terms of short-term problems that we are anticipating at this time, the most important is patient care. At this time, according to our understanding, there are three things on the patient's side that can boomerang into a big problem after a few months. They are admitting patients in a quarantine center which is overcrowded and ill-managed, but this is only the beginning of the problem. It has not yet erupted into a full-blown crisis as of now. But it is managed so badly at the start that we can anticipate what will be the situation arising out of this in a few months. Second, in terms of short-term problems, they are discharging the patients too quickly so that they can show the world the number of patients that have been treated. While it has, it has come to light, though not yet been confirmed, patients who have been discharged from quarantine have again tested positive, and this is when, according to their families, they have been living in isolation after returning home. So patients are being discharged too quickly just to show better numbers. In terms of internet, the doctors are suffering the most among us because this COVID crisis is such a thing that after every hour or so, there is some new research being developed and a new way of tackling the problem is emerging. Because of the lack of 4G internet speed, our doctors are not able to access this information, so they are limited to conventional treatments. The medical fraternity will be blamed for anything that goes wrong, but the reality is that India is choking their information dissemination spaces. And another thing I would like to share with you is that the government, because it wants to show the world that it was combating the coronavirus crisis, has shut down all other OPD services and routine surgeries in the hospitals, which means that a person who has a cardiac arrest will not be treated in any hospital, a patient with cancer will not get chemotherapy in any hospital, a person having renal failure will not get dialysis in any of the hospitals. And then there is the situation of the prisoners. Today we received an SOS from Tihar Jail in Delhi, where a woman cop has been confirmed as a COVID-positive case. And she was dealing with the mess and handling food for the inmates. So we have to think about what that means for the safety of the prisoners. And there are some female prisoners from Kashmir in that jail. Although the government of India has started to release some prisoners, the pace is slow, so slow that they may end up getting infected with the coronavirus. We feel that the world will end before all the prisoners are released or they will catch some infection or something like that. The problem is that if there is a will to act to free the prisoners, it can be done instantly. The jails are overcrowded, they are contaminated, they don't have facilities for isolation. Then there is a huge crowd of security personnel who are inside the jail who go outside and meet their families and friends. So given the intensity of the human contact, there is a high risk for the prisoners. Among long-term problems, Kashmir has very high unemployment. People here are working as daily wagers, and a large part of the population can be classified as semi-skilled or unskilled labor. So when we have a lockdown, when we are not able to deliver essentials to them, when government officials are delivering limited supplies for the sake of a photo op, giving them just 500 rupees a month, how can they survive? We are heading for a situation where there will be an acute food crisis. It's very evident from the messages we are getting. There are SOS messages every day. This area has a food shortage. This person has no resources to pay for food. If this continues, it will have an impact on the social order. Kashmir is already a lawless state where there has never been any sort of accountability. This can easily turn into a social disaster. So the need of the hour is for a proper health plan, but there is a huge shortage of proper medical equipment, and every day there is a story in the local media about the doctors lacking basic protective gear. 
The situation is so grim that we anticipate that people will not die of coronavirus. They will die of hunger. Summer is coming and in Kashmir this is called the earning season in terms of agricultural activities, in terms of horticulture, in terms of tourism. And all of these are closed down. Another long-term problem is in education. The government wants teachers to hold online classes just like everywhere else in the world. When internet speeds are limited to 2G, how can online classes happen? The consistent feedback from the teachers is telling us that online classes are not happening over here. Then there are a lot of areas where internet speeds have been minimized to zero. And there are many families and students who don't have access to computers and the internet. So there has to be some kind of alternative. What will be the impact of this situation in a year or two? Further, there is a livelihood aspect. All supplies are brought into Kashmir from outside. Why are they not produced within Kashmir when you have the resources, you have the manpower, and you have the infrastructure? You are just choking the essential services. In one of the southern districts, the supplier of materials for PPE kits was held up for 10 days by the administration when, to, when trying to bring his raw materials from outside Kashmir. Why is the administration trying to get the manufactured products from outside instead of allowing local manufacturers to make them? Making the products here would solve a lot of problems. There would be a stock of essential items readily available and livelihood problems would be minimized. So as I was telling you, we may die not only of coronavirus, we will die of hunger, we will die of other comorbidities. So this is how they plan and then they tell the world they have planned something good and great. But on the ground, every Kashmiri has the notion that this has turned out to be a gold mine for the government of India, wherein they are killing us without much effort. Between revocation of Article 370, introduction of CAA, and now the pandemic, Kashmir has faced months of crisis while being denied access to information and engagement with the international community. For human rights defenders in Kashmir, how have you and others sustained yourself and your work? Everyone in Kashmir is well aware of the state apparatus and everyone is aware that this is a conflict zone on the hotbed of a volcano wherein anything can happen anytime. So people in general know how to manage the nitty-gritty of things in terms of getting stocks of food, managing resources. But this problem is different because at this point of time you cannot go out of the home because of the pandemic, because your localities have not been sanitized, there has been no fumigation done by the government. The main critical factor is the lack of communication, the lack of mobility. We cannot work. In the rest of the world, 30 to 60% of the people are able to work from home. But in a situation where you don't have proper access to the internet, with an incompetent bureaucracy in place, particularly at the local level, though maybe not at the top level, that's another impediment. So we have to understand where we stand and adapt our way of doing things accordingly. As far as our work is concerned, it is very difficult and dangerous for us to work in these kind of circumstances. On the one hand, people are sometimes afraid that we are sharing their data with the state. And on the other side, the police thinks that we are just encouraging the sentiment of dissent by making human rights work reach out to the people. All human rights organizations in Kashmir are technically in some way victim-centered organizations with a lot of volunteers in almost every nook and corner of Kashmir. So it's somewhat easier for us now to get information than it was before. Kashmir is a very small place and in a small place, everyone knows everyone and everyone holds some sort of respect for each other. So for example, in terms of providing assistance to victims, people are very willing to help out through charity. There is an element of trust that has been gained over a period of time. But at this time, when everyone wants to do humanitarian relief work, the impediments are becoming very much de detrimental to individual safety.